We are going through the book of John, uh, part of the book of John, uh, after a fashion. We're in chapter 9 right now. And so let me go ahead and read. I'm going to read most of chapter 9. I'm going to cut out a few sections because it's long, and I want to make it a bit shorter if I can. So we're going to start at verse 1. You can follow along on the screen, or if you have your Bibles, you can read in John chapter 1 with us. Okay. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Now, just pause for a second. That would be, bing, red flag, because there's certain things you can't do on the Sabbath, including messing with dirt or, in some cases, healing someone. Some of the Pharisees said, this, is, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. I'm going to cut out another section here. And this, at this point, uh, they summon the man's parents to give testimony because they still don't quite believe that he was blind from birth. But the parents acknowledge that he was born blind, but they're afraid to say who healed him because there is a threat in place that anyone who acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah is going to get kicked out of the synagogue. So they don't say anything about that. A second time, they summon the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have already told you and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke through Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. 
Just, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him saying this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as these words kind of just roll around in our heads right now, I pray that it's your Holy Spirit that would kind of open them up for us and cause our hearts to receive them. That we would not be blind to the things that you're trying to communicate to us but we would see. And so, Lord, reveal our blind spots. Reveal our symptoms of blindness today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, in John's Gospel, uh, he says at the end that there were a lot of signs and wonders that Jesus performed, most of which are not recorded in his book. But the ones that he does record are specifically chosen so that through them... You may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, for which they got kicked out of the synagogue for believing, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And what that means is that each of these stories are strategically chosen because they're not just about what you see at face value. They point to something beyond themselves. That means that this story is not a story just about a blind man being healed physically, but it's about spiritual blindness and how Jesus heals spiritual blindness. What is spiritual blindness? In the story, we might say it kind of comes down to wisdom or having the ability to accurately discern and perceive what is true, to sense the reality that's behind the reality, to see what is true, not just what we see with our eyes. We already speak about ways of seeing that don't involve our eyes, our our actual eyesight. You might find yourself in a position where you're faced with a tough choice to make, and you're not really sure how to make the right decision. But then years go by, or time goes by, and having, you know, understood more information or gathered more, or, or been able to see the results of that decision, you now can say, I now see that that was the right choice, or I now see that it was the wrong choice. It's a way of talking about sight that doesn't actually involve eyesight. So we're kind of used to this idea. What is natural blindness? To be physically blind is to have reduced, to some extent, our ability to discern our environment around us, our physical environment. Not completely, but at least somewhat. Spiritual blindness, then, is an inability to discern what is truly going on spiritually whether inside of ourselves or in the lives of people around us. Now, think about death. What is death? Death is to be cut off from every sensory perception, right? To be completely cut off from our understanding or ability to interact with our surroundings around us, right? And, and that's a fitting metaphor because John 3, Jesus says that we're all spiritually dead, Unless the Spirit brings us to new life. And Mark preached about how we all have a spiritual hunger. And how Jesus is the bread of life. And Brian preached about how we all have a spiritual thirst. And how Jesus 
It gives us living water and causes us to become springs of living water, referring to the Holy Spirit. And last week, we revealed that we are all slaves, spiritually, to sin, who need to be set free. And when the people protested, Jesus proved their slavery to sin, our slavery to sin. When he provoked them, provoked us enough to cause us to manifest that slavery by, in this case, picking up stones to try to kill him, proving that they were listening to a different father whose nature is murder and lies. They proved it. And on the cross, when the last and ultimate final human source of judgment and justice cast its vote, made its judgment against Jesus, proving that they were listening, we were listening to the wrong father as slaves of that father, slaves to sin. And he vindicated himself. God vindicated Jesus at the resurrection, proving that our sight was blindness and our judgment was off. This week we're talking about spiritual blindness and we are all spiritually blind unless the Spirit opens our eyes. Now I want to add a note of caution here because when you start diagnosing what is spiritual blindness, what does it mean to be able to see, it's easy then to start deciding who can see and who is blind. Well, I know someone like that. Oh, that reminds me of, and, and you've got to be careful there because that's exactly what the Pharisees do in this story. And he ends by saying it's those who claim they can see who are still guilty, who are blind. So, There's a note of caution. We don't want to go down that road. By contrast, the man who can now see has no problem recognizing he has blind spots. Right? We know this man is a sinner. Well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I'll tell you what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Right? So, a bit of review. This story is kind of the final capstone of the whole Feast of Tabernacles event in the book of John that we've been going through for the last four weeks, starting in chapter 7, verse 37, all the way through chapter 9 and into a bit of chapter 10, but we're not going to get into chapter 10. And I want to refer you to your bulletin. I made an insert. This is more for your information than in your, you know, kind of interest, if it piques your interest, and to make a point. In other words... You don't have to look at this and understand it all in order to be able to get what we're talking about for the rest of this. But what I'm trying to show here is that John has strategically structured this whole section around a Jewish event called the Feast of Tabernacles in order to show how Jesus takes what happened during that feast and redefines its meaning around himself. This story sort of takes a real-life flesh-and-blood person in a real-life flesh-and-blood situation and takes that story, and and basically what happens in that story is everything that Jesus has been talking about leading up to it. But it also fits, because there's a lot of structural things happening here. We begin with spiritual thirst, and we end with spiritual blindness. We, we talk about a story. We actually didn't talk about the story. I'll tell you why in a minute. You can read the little footnote at the bottom and on the back of why we didn't talk about the story of the woman caught in adultery. And it contrasts the story that we read today. Um, and you'll see that, you know, if you look at it, there's like 
notes here. D correlates with D, C correlates with C. I don't know if I have it all exactly right, um, but there is a structure here. There's a design to it, and it all hinges around the center. The center being the statement where Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I preached on that last week. And he says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And now we have a story about Jesus setting this man free. So it begins with, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And we find out that neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, That doesn't mean that this man nor his parents had never sinned. What it means is that the sin was not a cause of blindness. But if you look at this, what you have at the beginning, back in chapter 8, is you have a story of a woman who's caught in sin. And she's brought to Jesus to judge. She's caught in the act. What are you going to do with that? Jesus does something with the dirt, draws in the sand, and then frees her from condemnation. By contrast, now you have a story where you have a man who it says is blind, but it's not because he sinned. So he doesn't come with sin, unlike the woman who was caught in sin. And he's brought to the Pharisees to judge, and they condemn him as a sinner and cast him out. There's a whole bunch of other similarities. Again, Jesus does something with the dirt, puts dirt on the man's eyes, tells him to go and wash. He tells the man to go just as he tells the woman to go and sin no more. So you can see there's a lot of intentional parallels here. But the contrast is who is the right judge? Who can really see? Here's a woman who is a sinner brought to Jesus to judge and he frees her from condemnation. Here's a man who has no sin, who's brought to the Pharisees. They say, you were steeped in sin at birth and they condemn him and then cast him out of the synagogue. So you can see the contrast here. Now there's a lot of cultural ideas about sin as punishment for suffering. In other words, the belief that if you're having a hard life, you must have done something to deserve it. And we still see that today. Maybe you've heard the phrase or said the phrase, gosh, I must have done something right, you know, when things are going well in your life. I remember hearing, uh, I think it was Reliant K, like they had a song and he's all about how he's so in love with this girl and the, the tagline of the song is, I must have done something right. Well, if you believe that things will go well for you because you must have done something right, then that means that you also believe that when things don't go well for you, it means that you must have done something wrong, right? Uh, we have a family in our church who lost their daughter And they were a part of another church at that time. And this is years and years ago. But when their daughter contracted HIV, um, someone in the church told them that it must be because of sin that was in their family that they had done. They must have done something to deserve it. That's why they don't go to that church anymore. But what does Jesus say? Um, Notice the Pharisees buy into that. They discredit the man's testimony because they say you were steeped in sin from birth. The reason for your blindness is you must have had a family who were sinners. Jesus says neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed. Now, in a sense, all suffering comes from sin because the Bible teaches that suffering was not originally a part of the plan, but because of human rebellion, suffering entered into the world. 
So in a general sense, that might be true, but in a particular sense, we can't conclude that a person's suffering is a direct result of a person's particular sin. Now, there is such a thing as natural consequences. If you make stupid choices, you might suffer. That's just the way life works most of the time. And God does occasionally use circumstances to lovingly discipline his children at times, and no loving father wouldn't do that. If he sees them moving in a destructive trajectory, he will use suffering oftentimes to discipline and bring his kids back around. But we don't know when that's happening and when it's not happening. And here Jesus is saying this blindness is not judgment for sin, but so that God's works would be revealed. Now, is he saying, therefore, this man went through an entire lifetime of blindness, begging, whatever, all the things that come along with blindness, suffering for this one moment so that God could show off, so that God could perform a miracle. Look, everyone, see, this is who I am. No, that's not what he means by that. And the reason we know that is because of what he says at the very end. What does he say at the very end? He says, this man is socially disadvantaged. He's a beggar. And it's on those who claim that they can see that their guilt remains. The blind are receptive to the works of God because they know they need him. It's those who see, who think they can see, who do not receive what Jesus has to offer because they believe they have no need of him. This man's blindness opens him up to receiving what Jesus has because of his condition, where he's at. So that's one point about spiritual blindness is that the people who are most at risk of being spiritually blind are the socially elite, the privileged, the successful, the ones with the higher IQs. That doesn't make success bad. That doesn't make being smart bad. That doesn't make being privileged even bad. But whereas those most likely to have their eyes opened are the disadvantaged, those who don't realize they need a doctor are not going to ask for a doctor. And this is not always the case. Back in chapter 5, Jesus heals a paralytic who turns, who turns right around and turns Jesus into the authorities for healing on the Sabbath. So it's not always the case that a person who is at a disadvantage socially is going to receive what Jesus has to say. Nor that a person who is socially advantaged will necessarily reject Jesus. But in general, if you don't think you need a doctor, you're not going to be healed. And there is nothing worse than that. There is no further incurable disease than a disease that has a cure, but the person who has the disease refuses to acknowledge they need a cure. You can't be cured in that situation because you can't see your spiritual disadvantage. The church is not the place where all the good people go. To be a Christian means our eyes have been opened to the fact that we are slaves to sin and need a rescuer. We are sick and need a healer. We are blind and need our eyes to be opened. Which means that one of the signs of having had our eyes open is that there is no longer a religious superiority complex. 
Unfortunately, we, we still see that among Christians today. The saved are not necessarily the good people, but the ones who recognize they are not good. And the lost are not necessarily the bad people, but those who are proud. Jesus says we're all sinners, we're all beggars, we're all slaves, and we desperately need grace. And that, that is a hard message. If you're successful, brilliant, resting on your own merits and laurels, because you have to admit that you're wrong and depraved, just like everyone else. But you judge according to what you see, just like the Pharisees, judging the blind man by what they see and drawing their own conclusions from that. Why is this man suffering? Because he was steeped in sin from birth. When we are successful, the danger is that we can attribute our own success to our ability to see. Kind of like that movie star who all of a sudden thinks that because he or she is a famous movie star, they now have a political platform too. Right? Like, wait a minute, you're a good entertainer and somehow that gives you an authoritative voice to speak about politics? Now, wait a minute. We look at our success and we say, aha, this means I have the ability to see. Point number two would be those who are spiritually blind claim to know where others are spiritually. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Or verse 24, a second time they bring the man who had been blind, Give glory to God by telling the truth. And they said, We know that this man is a sinner. We know. What were they basing this on? They're basing it on Jesus breaking the Sabbath. But did Jesus really break the Sabbath? And that's why Jesus inserts verse 4 in there. That's why John inserts verse 4. As long as it is, it is day. Excuse me. We must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am in the light. I am the light of the world. And that explains why Jesus is about to do what he does in part on the Sabbath because he knows they're going to accuse him of being a Sabbath breaker. But the answer is that Jesus is sent from God to do the works of God. Sabbath is man resting from man's work and resting in God's work. Jesus is not breaking the Sabbath because it is God working through him. <coughs> Excuse me. Not man working. When we rest, we're submitting to God and resting in him. Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, is not the one who needs to rest. He is the one whose work we submit to when we rest. So he's not actually a Sabbath breaker. Now, I explain that to you. You might say, like, man, I don't, I don't care. What, what are you telling me all this background information for? Well, because when I read this, I read an accusation. He's a sinner because he breaks the Sabbath. And they don't really explain it directly. And so that might trouble you a little bit if you're reading this. Okay, why does he think he gets to break the rules when no one else does? Okay. But on a more practical level, why, did Jesus, why does John say this? Why did Jesus say this? Why does he include it? Because Jesus had just exited the temple as people are about to kill him by throwing stones at him. He knows that it's the Sabbath. He knows he's going to get in trouble. But he's looking at this man and he hears that prompting from God. And he goes, 
The light isn't going to be here much longer. While I'm here, I've got to do the Father's work. I have to do it while it's here to do. He sees this man and he refuses to pass him up. He refuses to pass the man by knowing that this is not what you do when your self-interest, when your self-preservation is a priority. But he lays that aside and stops to do his father's work, knowing that they will judge him for it, knowing that it will come back to bite him. By the way, the rules about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath come from the Mishnah, not the Bible. And yet the Pharisees, they're so confident in their interpretation of how the Sabbath commandment should be upheld that they readily label Jesus as a sinner for breaking their interpretation of the Bible, the command, not the Bible itself. Their confidence is rooted in their own judgment, not in the Word of God. But he sees this man and he doesn't pass him by. He could have acted in self-preservation, but he chose not to. The Pharisees can't see the work of God because they're spiritually blind. They insist on being able to know where everyone else is at spiritually. And sometimes we're like that. Oh, I know where he is. Oh, I know where she is. So by contrast, point number three is that those who have had their eyes opened know that they still have blind spots. And I alluded to this earlier. Notice how the blind man, notice how easygoing he is about this. Where is this man? I don't know. I actually admitted that section. The neighbors say, where is the guy who healed you? He's like, I don't know where he is. We know that this man is a sinner. Well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He can now see, yet because he can see there is a peace about him in the truth. And he has peace about acknowledging, I don't know everything. I don't have to convince you. I don't, I don't know all, everything. I don't have to prove myself to you because I have the truth. He doesn't need to convince the world that he can see. Unlike the Pharisees who claim to know everything about this situation. Now, I'm going to, I got, you know, this, this far in my sermon preparation, I realized I'm about a quarter of the way through this text, and I've burned up about two-thirds of our time. So we're going to switch gears, and I'm going to go into, like, summary mode on laying out what is the, ana- the analysis or the anatomy of spiritual blindness, and then what does it look like when someone can see. So I'm going to kind of bullet point the rest. The first couple points we kind of got, spiritually blind people tend to be those who are the advantaged whereas those who can see tend to be those who are disadvantaged. Two, those who are blind spiritually believe they can see where others are at spiritually. Okay, we just talked about then that one. And then another point, we might call it point number four, is that spiritually blind people are slow to believe in the testimony of someone uh, whom God is working through when it doesn't fit their categories. They didn't believe the man had been blind until they sent for his parents. And even after his parents' testimony, they still refused to receive it. They summoned the man again. And they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he's like, didn't I just tell you that? But they can't receive it because it doesn't fit their categories. It doesn't fit their logic. So they refuse to accept it. Have you ever 
felt that way. Like, I don't know what to do with it, what's been presented to me, but I cannot receive it for what this claim is. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with what I know. It doesn't fit my experiences. It doesn't fit my agenda. It doesn't fit my politics. Another characteristic is they root their pride in their tribe. Pride of tribe, another symptom of spiritual blindness. He says, why do you want me to hear this from me again? Do you want to become his disciples too? You're a disciple of Jesus. We're disciples of Moses. We know that Moses heard from God. We don't know about this guy. We're disciples of Moses. And sometimes it's easy to look at ourselves and claim that because we're in the right tribe, the right crew, that means we can see. Another point would be that when challenged, we go into attack mode, casting judgment or getting personally offended. When presented with the truth, look, this is what we see. This is what we know. This is the truth as I see it. And this is what it implies. We get so defensive that it either results in you're judging me and you're personally offending me and now I'm a victim or it's not my fault, it's his fault, it's hers fault, it's your fault, you're the enemy, you're the one, not me. We turn it away from ourselves whenever we can, whenever things get dicey and that's what these men do. He says, that's remarkable. You don't even know where this man comes from yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a blind man. If this man were not from God, he could, he could do nothing. And so they reply, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They don't even address the logic, which is pretty good that he just presented. So when we are blind, we can't take a challenge, a personal challenge well. We go into attack mode. We have to control the situation. That's what happens when we're blind. And we might resort to bullying. The parents are afraid to even acknowledge Jesus because they've been told that anyone who does will get kicked out of the synagogue. As long as you think you can see, you will never see Jesus for who he is. As long as you trust in your own judgment above everyone else's, as long as you insist I can see better based on my tribe and its views, based on my politics, based on my upbringing, my past experiences, my past pain that informs my present actions, as long as that can't break down at all, as long as our preconceived ideas about what is good or not good and right and wrong, whatever it is, as long as we can't let that be broken down, we're spiritually blind. When I was a kid, my grandma ruined my life for the best. She's probably listening. She just turned 92, and she's listening on her iPad right now. And she's awesome that way, because listening on your iPad makes you awesome. No, no, don't, uh, that's not, that's not, that's blind logic. Don't listen to that. <laughs> but... As many kids go through, especially when you're the firstborn, it's really hard to admit when you're wrong. And uh, my brother, 
actually my brother and my sister-in-law are in town now, and he texted me before the service saying, sorry, we're working on something they're cooking. We're not going to make it into the service today. So I said, I'm going to talk about you. (laughs) And I said, the topic is spiritual blindness. (laughs) So here I am. We used to get into a lot of fights, and I was usually right when it came down to it. No, I was always right. But when we get in trouble, um, we would start pitching stones at each other, bickering and justifying ourselves, and I could always justify my actions. But my grandma pinned me down with these words. Don't deny, don't defend, and don't attack. Don't deny, don't offend, and don't attack. And I'd say, but grandma, you don't understand. Don't don't deny, don't defend, and don't attack. And I'd say, you don't understand. My logic, don't deny, don't defend, and don't attack. But he, don't deny, don't defend, and don't attack. I'm like, you don't even care about me. You don't care that I'm right. She cared about me, but she cared enough to put me in my place so that I'd know that there's something a lot more important than being right. It's being able to see and not being blind. And man, it's funny how your own kids start reflecting the same things. This is what we're dealing with right now. So I'm using these words on my kids, and I think it's driving them about as crazy as it drove me. But those are the symptoms. When we get defensive, when we deny our own blindness, our own wrongdoing, when we have to defend ourselves, when we have to turn it around and put it on someone else, right? When we have to say, it's not not me, it's him, or you're the enemy, or you're judging me, or this is spiritual blindness. When we keep criticism or truth because it offends us. Have you ever had your spiritual eyes opened? I want to talk now about the anatomy of having spiritual eyes, for lack of a better word. When your eyes have been opened, one of the first things, one of the first signs is that you realize how blind you are. You realize how many blind spots you have. But this isn't really a personal problem anymore. You don't have to know everything because you don't have to prove anything. Two, you'll probably end up being judged by others. In other words, because you're not on a merit system of having to prove everything, those who do might be found more credible than you and you might not be treated as nicely. Or, like this man, simply telling the truth gets him kicked out of the synagogue and being judged as a sinner steeped in sin from birth. When you can see you're probably going to get some flack for it. But that doesn't bother you as much. Number three, you're going to realize that you did not open your eyes. Your eyes were opened for you. And not as a result of your own work. And there's a whole bunch of meaning behind the pool that's called scent, Siloam. The meaning being that it's Jesus who does the work of the Father, not the water in the pool, and not the act of washing necessarily, but it's him who is sent to do the work. He 
open the man's eyes, not the man. And there's a whole other parallel between that. I just can't even go into it. A whole bunch more cool information that we don't have time for today. You recognize that your eyes are open because of a higher power. The man starts by saying, they say, who is he? He says, well, he's a prophet. And later he says, uh, Lord, I believe. Later he acknowledges that he's the son of man. Actually, that's in reverse order. Son of man, then Lord, then he believes and he worships him. You no longer fear man because you're not driven by the praise of man. He has no problem challenging the authorities when no one else would, knowing that it would get him kicked out. Now that's remarkable, he says. But he's only pointing out the truth as he sees it. Contrast the parents who wouldn't tell the truth because they were afraid of the, and they were concerned about the praise of man. They didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. So when we can see, we may receive condemnation, but it doesn't matter because you've already been under condemnation. You already know what it is to realize that you are a sinner, a slave, a beggar, a sinner condemned and unclean like the woman caught in adultery. And now you are free. So no person who claims to speak for God can stand in judgment over you anymore because you know where you stand with God. And there is now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ. So you receive condemnation, perhaps, but it doesn't matter. Lastly, you believe in the Son of Man and worship Him. And it's good that they included that note. Because worshiping the wrong thing is the ultimate cause of blindness. Worshiping the right thing is the only cure for blindness over time. One commentary that I wrote made note of the Pharisees' behavior here and said, this behavior is not in keeping with their actual teachings, um, but with human nature. In other words, what they worship and why they're defensive doesn't come from their actual beliefs, but comes from their worship of the praise of man and their sin that they're trying to cover up. John chapter 12 summarizes the entire first half of the book of John, which is called the book of signs by some people because it's all about the signs that point to his glory. The second half of the book of John is all about the last three days, and they call it the book of glory because it's everything that the signs were pointing to. And in the first half is summarized in chapter 12, verse 37, with these words, Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him, in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith. 
for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. I grew up hearing the gospel message. The gospel message is, as Tim Keller put it repeatedly, we're way more sinful than we probably know we are, and we're far more loved than we would ever dare imagine. When you put those things together, you have something very profound. I grew up hearing the information that I'm a sinner and that I need grace, and that Jesus offers that on the cross by substituting himself for my sin and offering me freedom. I received that. I believed in it. But I was a person to whom the praise of man is still very important. Probably still am to some degree. And the combination of having the right information yet still clinging to the wrong thing led to not really knowing what to do about my sin. Because I'm still a sinner. And I had struggles. And when I would go through those struggles and realize I did not have the ability to cease to sin, I could only imagine God up there just shaking his head in disappointment. How could you do that to me when I went through so much on the cross for you? And at one point, everything I believed became an experience. There was a moment that I can point to when the gospel became real and my eyes were opened in this way. There was a moment when, and I've told this story many times, but a moment when I was destitute, depressed, on the floor, you know, just going, I give up. And then the words of a song that came on hit home and it was like Jesus was speaking straight to me and said, you think you're more powerful than the cross? You think that what you've done can take away what I've done? You think you can remove the holes where your name is engraved forever in my hands and feet and in my side? And I realize that it's the enemy who tempts us to despair by telling us of the guilt within And the song says, Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. And I realized that I was actually free from condemnation. And the condemnation I was experiencing wasn't coming from God, but it was coming from somewhere else. And I was listening to the wrong voice. And that freed me. All of a sudden, I had no problem admitting to people my sin. All of a sudden... I had uh, no trouble letting go of my need to know where everyone else was at spiritually. But we still have blind spots and we still fall back into patterns every once in a while. The point is, I had the right information, but God had to open my eyes. How about you? Has he opened your eyes? Have you actually experienced the cross What is it about this man that he can answer and stand up to the elite authorities when no one else will and be cast out by them? What makes him so even-keeled? 
He doesn't need to prove himself to anyone. He has no problem admitting he doesn't know and he doesn't have all the answers. But he has no problem challenging others that everyone else is afraid of with what he does know. Self-preservation comes secondary. Why? Because he's been set free. He's not a slave to condemnation. He's not a slave to the Pharisees. He doesn't have to be anymore. He's free because he knows the truth. He has a cross to bear. They're going to excommunicate him, but it was worth it. Why? What makes it worth it? What makes it worth it is that Jesus did the same thing for him. That Jesus does the same thing for us. Jesus was rejected, thrown out of the city, labeled a sinner, demon-possessed, etc., etc., and he did not pass up this man knowing that that would happen. And he does not pass you up knowing that that would happen on the cross. But instead, he takes our guilt upon himself. He takes our shame upon himself and he gives us his sinless life as credited to our own. And when we're undone by that, deeply undone by that, then our eyes are opened. Because we realize Yes, you're a sinner. And yes, there is now no condemnation. You are free. The man can bear his cross and we can bear our crosses because Jesus bore a cross first. Talk about someone else who doesn't know I'm going to talk about him. Craig Clark was... uh, We were in an elders meeting and he was telling a story about someone close to him who was having a lot of trouble with their information. They're they're saying, I'm having trouble believing because what about all the arguments? What about other gods? What about the scientific claims? What about, and and there's all these arguments going on and Craig said, yeah, I totally hear that. I, I hear where, man, that makes total sense to me. I understand your struggle very much. And this person asked him, well, why don't you struggle with it? And then he says, oh, it's because of what God has done in your life. Because he'd heard that before. They had the same information to struggle with. But what Craig has claimed is that he's had an experience. He's experienced the gospel. He's known forgiveness. He's known transformation that saved him, saved his marriage, saved everything. And that makes a huge difference. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Okay, God. We do get defensive. We do turn the blame around. We deny, we defend, we attack. And I pray, God, that all of our but grandma objections would submit and crumble now. You don't care about me being right? 
No, I care about you being free. Show us, Lord, where we still are blind. Where we seem to need to know where everyone else is at. Where we need to be able to pass judgment. Where we get defensive when we're challenged. Show us where the praise of man has become more important than the praise of God. Those places where we refuse to speak the truth that we have experienced, that we've seen. Open our eyes. Open our eyes to the depth of our brokenness and sin, but open our eyes to the gravity of your love that put self-preservation behind him and put rescuing us first. Because you went first, God, open our eyes and help us to follow. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.